Amen. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Uh, if you're just here coming to Crossroad for the first time, welcome. Certainly glad that you are here. And uh, if you feel like you kind of are drinking from a fire hose tonight, that's okay. That's kind of what we do here. We go very deeply into the text. And sometimes if you're not used to that, it can be a little overwhelming. Okay. Uh, and we're in the book of Romans and we're, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 14 tonight. So in order to look at Romans 14, I need to back up two steps for you. When you look at the New Testament, there are different ways people interpret the New Testament. And what I mean by that is I mean schools of interpretation they use to try to make sense of what the New Testament is saying. Now, out of all those schools, there's only one that will truly get you to the meaning inside the books of the New Testament. There's only one. Now, let me give you some examples of what some of these schools are. For example, there's the allegorical school of biblical interpretation. And what that school teaches is that the New Testament is a metaphor. It's not true. It's a myth. But in the myths, you can find truths. Okay? You'll hear this all the time. The New Testament's a myth. There were, you know, all the stories about Jesus. Here's the problem with saying that the New Testament is only an, an, an allegory or a metaphor. All right? Uh, Let's say the story of Jesus walking on the water is a metaphor and the disciples are in the boat and the storm blows up and he's, they're terrified and he walks out and he calls Peter on the water and Peter steps out of the water and walks on water and then starts sinking and Jesus, you know the story or you should know the story probably. Okay. Let's say that's a metaphor. What's the metaphor that Jesus is all powerful and can call you out of the boat? Like what's the metaphor? That he has the power to tell you what to do and you can overcome the laws of physics? Like any metaphor of any miracle of Jesus is like when he calms the storm in the boat. What's the metaphor? That he controls the power of the earth? What's the metaphor of him raising from the dead? That he has the power over death? Like there's no way that you can make a myth out of those miracles and use that system to interpret the whole of the New Testament because it's redundant. Another way that people try to interpret the New Testament is called a progressive revelation. And a progressive revelation says that, yeah, that's what people knew about God then, but 2,000 years later, this is what we know now. And so what we know about God has moved along and uh, we should interpret the Bible through what we know now rather than what it actually says. Okay, well, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is, is that you can then make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Okay? Using progressive revelation, uh, you could make the Bible say whatever you want to say. You could use it to say slavery's okay. You could use it to say anything you wanted it to say using a progressive revelation. The one way that you can interpret the Bible and actually get to what it's saying and make it make sense for today is called the historical grammatical approach. The historical grammatical approach. And what you do in the historical grammatical approach, the first thing you do is you try to understand the letter as it was written to the people it was written to. And when you understand what the author was trying to say to the people he wrote it to then, then you take that lesson and you apply it as best you can in your time today. 
Okay, that's how you bridge the gap is what it's called in the theology school. If you go, if you ever go to the seminary, you'll at one point take a lesson on bridging the hermeneutical gap. And that's what it is. What did Paul say to the Romans in the first century that applies to us today? Now, that's the big picture. In order to understand Romans, we need to understand what Paul was writing when he wrote this letter. And in order to understand that, you have to understand what it meant in Paul's time to have Jews and Gentiles in the same church. See, if you don't get the sociological factors of trying to make one church out of both Jews and Gentiles, not only are you not going to understand Romans 14, but almost every single book of the New Testament will be a mystery to you. Let me tell you how big a deal Jew and Gentiles being in the same church was. Virtually every single book of the New Testament deals with with Jews and Gentiles in the same book, in the same church, okay? I'm talking, it's on par with understanding the resurrection of Christ. It's on par with understanding how Paul understood Jesus' death on the cross, paying for the sins of people. Understanding Paul's dilemmas when he's trying to explain Jews and Gentiles in the same church, every single book you open up is gonna have something in it about what was going on in those churches between Jews and Gentiles. Now, if that language is new to you, if you don't know what I mean when I say Jews and Gentiles, the Bible essentially presents the world as two races, Jews and Gentiles. Now, don't get me wrong, the Bible understands that there's different kinds of Gentiles, right? But it only thinks in terms of you are a Jew or you are a people of the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles. And you can be an African Gentile, you can be an Asian Gentile, you can be a European Gentile, it doesn't matter. You are either a Jew or you are a Gentile. So Jews, because of that religious way they look at the world and look at races, are incredibly insulated in Paul's time. They will not deal with anybody from any other nation. They won't talk with them. They won't shop with them. They won't touch them. They'll cross the street when they see them coming. They have no contact with Gentiles in any way. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes along and Paul comes along and Paul and Peter and John and all the apostles realize that God wants both Jews and Gentiles in the same church together. And you can imagine all the kinds of problems that started. All the ways that they had to try to work out all, you I mean, we understand racial tension in our country. We do. So take racial tension and add religious fervor to it. And then imagine trying to go to church on Sunday. Okay. That's what we're dealing with here. So Paul in almost all of his letters is writing about this. In fact, there are letters of the Bible that are just about that. They have all kinds of other theology in them, but what they're really about is trying to get Jews and Gentiles on the same page. Like, for example, the book of Galatians is essentially telling Jews, shut up, Gentiles are Christians. That's what the book of Gentiles, that's what the book of Galatians is about. It's about telling Jews, hey, Gentiles are Christians, shut up. If the word shut up offends you, it's going to get much worse from here, okay? <laughs> the book of Ephesians is essentially telling Gentiles, shut up, Jews are Christians, 
Okay, so Paul is writing to both sides and he's going, you have got to start getting along here. You have got to figure out how you are in Christ and not in your racial identity anymore. You're not in that racial religious identity anymore. You are beyond that. You're in Christ, okay? The issues between Jews and Gentiles are so strong that it actually causes a fight between the apostles, Paul and Peter. In the book of Galatians, uh, Here's what's happened is Peter has come up, Galatia is a region. All the other, most of the other names like Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, those are cities that Paul wrote to. But Galatia is a region. And Peter had come up into Galatia and was meeting with Gentile Christians and started hanging out with them. And for the first time in his life, started eating bacon sandwiches, okay? Now, if you know anything about the Jewish religious law, part of it is a very, very strict dietary code. They can only eat certain things, and it is incredibly serious. Uh, Things they can't eat are things like any kind of pork, uh, any kind of shellfish, no shrimp, no nothing like that. And it is a religious sin to eat anything that's not kosher. So... Peter has a vision in Acts where Jesus tells him, hey, you can eat whatever you want to eat now. Everything's fine. And Peter says, no way, Jesus. You'd think that Peter would have learned his lesson telling Jesus stuff. Like anytime Peter tried to tell Jesus stuff, it went terribly wrong for him. Uh, So he he says, no, Jesus, I can't do that. And and Jesus goes, okay, Peter, seriously, you're going to have to get on board with this stuff because now you can eat bacon sandwiches and you're going to dig them. So, So Peter goes up into Galatia and he starts eating bacon sandwiches. And then what happens is some Jewish Christians from Israel come up to visit and Peter starts shunning the Gentile Christians and starts acting like he doesn't know them and he didn't eat bacon sandwiches. And he starts hanging out with the Jewish Christians again. And Paul hears about it. And if you know anything about Paul, Paul ain't playing no games. Okay, so here's what Paul does. This is the book of Galatians. This is Galatians 2, and it says this. But when Cephas, that's Peter, he won't even call him Peter because he's mad at him. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that's in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest, uh, that sounds terrible. (laughs) That... I don't think anybody is ever wanting to go to a circumcision party. You want to come to my circumcision party? Are there chips? I don't, I don't know. Okay. First heresy in the Christian church. The very first heresy in the Christian church was called the Judaizers. The Judaizers would come to Gentile Christians and they would say, yes, Jesus is the Lord. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, you must believe in his death and resurrection and you must also follow the Old Testament law. Do those things and you're saved. And they were telling Gentile men who were not circumcised that they had to come be circumcised. If you don't know what circumcision is, Google it, okay? (laughs) So Peter is not just saying, so he is not just saying, I'm not going to eat bacon sandwiches with you guys because uh, my friends from Israel are coming and it'll be weird. Paul is actually okay with that. 
Paul would actually be okay with, with, with Peter saying, you know what, my friends from Israel are coming and it would really hurt them if they saw me eating this way, so I'm not gonna do it. It's not because I don't love y'all, it's just because I don't wanna hurt them. Paul would say, Good, that's exactly right. But Peter's not doing it because of that. He's doing it because he's not sure about the gospel. He's wondering, maybe they do have to be circumcised. So Paul opposes him to his face and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile eating bacon sandwiches and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, so the, the reason I'm pointing this out is because I desperately really want you to hear how much Jewish-Gentile relations had to do with the formation of the early church, what a huge deal it was. Okay, the whole book of Ephesians is Paul writing about how God is reconciling Jew and Gentiles. This is from Ephesians chapter two. Now, if you know Ephesians well, we studied Ephesians a while ago. If you've been in college for like six years, you should have heard it. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, is one of the most famous gospel passages in the whole Bible. If you want my opinion and you want to memorize gospel passages, you memorize Romans 3, 21 through 26, the most important verses in the whole Bible. You should know them backwards and forwards. You should know the arguments. You should understand every word in that passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26. Next is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, specifically verses 8 and 9, which says, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It is a gift of of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. That is the gospel. You know what the next thing he says is? Look at this. This is Ephesians 2.14. I mean, it's right after the gospel. And he says, for he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, meaning the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. He's made us one by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body, that's the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is making a theological argument that there is not supposed to be anything like Jew and Gentile anymore in Jesus. It's not just the races that he is reconciling, it's the sexes. In the book of Genesis, once Adam and Eve sin, God pronounces curses on humanity. Now the curses are delivered first to Eve and then to Adam, but they apply to everyone, okay? Uh, when Paul says to the woman, I am gonna greatly increase your pain during childbirth, like the men are like, that didn't really affect me. It affects boys who die during childbirth. It affects men who watch their women. It affects all of us. Right? And the curse on Adam that says, you will live in futility all of your days. That affects women. 
Women understand the futility of life, right? So notice what Paul says to Eve, um, excuse me, what God says to Eve in Genesis chapter three. And it says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Part of the curse of sin that God left us in a state is an enmity between the sexes. And it goes both ways. It's not men over women or women over men cursed. The curse affects the sexes, how they were meant to live together in peace. They are now sinfully at war with one another. Christ came not only to reconcile Jew and Gentile, but to reconcile male and female. In the book of uh, Galatians, uh, Paul says, there is, remember this phrase, no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no slave. There is no free. There is no male. There is no female. But all are Christ's. Now, I don't think that what Jesus is trying to say is that when heaven comes, we're gonna look like androgynous Barbies, okay? Let you figure that one out. He's not saying there's no male and there's no female. He is saying, I have reconciled you through the cross. Okay, so now that we've set the stage, let's take a look at the actual passage. And watch as Paul dives into trying to explain how a church of Jew and Gentiles who have been raised in totally different cultures, in totally different ways of even eating, how they are to live together. And then, once we understand what he wrote to them, let's see what it says to us. Romans 14, verse 1 says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. All right, weak in faith, I'll deal with in just a minute. But what Paul says to do in a church is to welcome anyone who says they are a Christian and to do so in such a way that you do not quarrel over opinions. And here's the key word, opinions. All through this passage, uh, we're going to watch Paul mention three things that we're not to quarrel over. Now, when I say them, you're going to kind of go, only one of those even applies to me because I don't even understand what you're saying. He talks about eating meat. He talks about which day you worship on. And he talks about drinking alcohol. Now, I know drinking alcohol is going to be one that's really going to resonate with you and where we live in our culture. We're going to deal with that one in two weeks in great detail. But I want you to understand what he's trying to do in the other two categories tonight to build a place for us to understand the arguments that he's going to make about alcohol. But these things are opinions. Paul is always talking about what the Old Testament considered to be ceremonial laws, never moral laws. What Paul's talking about here is not somebody comes to your church and goes, hey, I, uh, I'm a Christian and I think it's okay to have sex with animals. Welcome me. You go, well, we're going to welcome you, but we're going to have a really long talk about stay away from my dog. Okay. <laughs> that that is sin, that is wrong. Moral law is never, ever relaxed in the New Testament. Not once, not ever. 
Ceremonial law is done away with in the New Testament. It's done away with. You can eat whatever you want to eat. You can worship on whatever day you want to worship on. You don't have to worry about where your food comes from. Moral law is increased exponentially. See, in the Old Testament, moral law says don't commit adultery. Okay? In the New Testament, what's the commandment? Do you remember? Don't even lust. See, don't ever confuse moral law and ceremonial law. Right now, we've got a lot of people wanting to mix those categories up and say, well, why is this law not followed in the New Testament? Because it's clearly a ceremonial law. Why is this law enforced in the New Testament? Because it's clearly a moral law. All right, so as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But what does he mean? He says this in verse two and three. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. All right, number one, and the first thing I think we should put out there, vegetarianism is evil, You are weak of faith if you only eat vegetables. Proof in the Bible done. Let's have a barbecue, okay? Is this saying vegetarianism is wrong? No, even though I did use this passage once in college to totally mess up a vegan girl, and then I explained to her later I was just kidding because that's how evil I am, all right? What is it saying here? I've given you 20 minutes of context. This is a Jew-Gentile issue. Go in the Old Testament, start reading the kosher law. Guess what virtually every single kosher law is about? Meat. It's all meat. So when you read only eat vegetables, what you are seeing is Paul saying, here comes a Jew who lived their whole life only eating vegetables. So they were absolutely sure They never broke kosher. And now that they're a Christian, they're having trouble changing the way that they understand the way God redeems people. That's why he says they are weak of faith. They're weak of faith because they don't truly get and trust the gospel yet. And Paul is saying to the Gentile who eats all the meat they want, they eat anything. That's how we Gentiles roll. Bacon, mmm, right? But he says to them, don't pass judgment on the vegetarian, the kosher vegetarian. Don't look at them and say, you've got to believe the gospel more, what's wrong with you? Help them, encourage them. And likewise, he's saying to the vegetarian, he's saying, hey, just because you can't go eat a bacon sandwich and some shrimp, Don't look at the people who do and think they're wrong. God is welcome to those people. How can you tell them they're wrong? See, this is what he's trying to say here. He's trying to tell them, you're gonna have to live together and you're gonna have to live together in ways that are gonna make you uncomfortable. Because I guarantee you, the Jewish people who walked in and watched people eat pig for the first time in their whole lives were disgusted because that's what they'd been taught by their culture their whole lives. You do not set that aside easily. 
You cannot set aside what you were, what you were raised with very simply. And the Gentiles who'd spent their whole lives never even thinking about what they ate, oh, well, let's kill it, eat it. Did it have a heart? Let's eat that too. For them to be all of a sudden here, hey, you can only eat vegetables. They're like, seriously? Are there vegetables with hearts? Besides artichokes? Like, verse four, he says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That's Christ. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See, here's what Paul's saying here. He's going, if you look at someone and say, you need to have more faith, what God is saying to you is, you need to shut up, because I'm going to save that person. Are you saving that person? Did you die on the cross for them? What's your opinion matter then? Oh, yeah, nothing. Eat a rib and be quiet. Likewise, he's saying to the vegetarian, are you the person that's telling them what they can and can't eat? Is that your job? You got a roll, you got a steak in this? You don't have a steak in this. You don't eat steak. You eat vegetables. Be quiet. I mean, all over the New Testament, I wish you could see how many times the Bible says, in essence, mind your own business. That's a Bible command I think we can all get behind. In verse five, he says, one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Why do we have church on Sunday? I'm about to blow your minds. Tradition. But it's in the Bible. I mean, we're supposed to, it's in the Bible. No, it's not. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead. There is no commandment in the Bible that says do church on Sunday. None. I know. You're like, well, it just works out that way best because we're not working. Okay. We built our work weeks that way. It does work best. There is no biblical commandment that says you have to to have church on Sunday, none. And so if early Christians are still worshiping on Sunday, the day the Lord was resurrected, and then Jewish believers come along to whom Saturday has always been the Sabbath. By the way, if you didn't know, Saturday is the Sabbath, not Sunday. And they come along and they wanna worship Jesus on Saturday. Jew, Gentile Christians are going, no, you gotta do it on Sunday. And Jewish Christians are like, well, we've always done it on Saturday. Why can't we do it on Saturday? One person esteems one day better than another. Some dudes want to have worship every single day of the week. Great. Fine. But if you do it, do it when you do it in honor of the Lord. That's the key. The one who eats, eats to the honor of the Lord. And the one who abstains, abstains to the honor of the Lord. We have to be, and this is what's hard for people to get, is that we have to be fully convinced in our own minds. Okay? See, here's one of the things about the alcohol talk I'll give you. If you think it's wrong to drink, then it is wrong for you. And if you drink and you think it's wrong, you've sinned because you went against your conscience. 
But if you don't think it's wrong to drink and you drink, you haven't sinned because you didn't think it was. See, that is mind-blowing for Christians who've been raised in legalism, who think everything has to have a category to find out that the Bible says there's a lot of things you can make your own mind up about. But in doing that, if you use your decision to lord it over another Christian, you have spit on Jesus's blood. That's what it says. So think hard. Think very hard. Whatever you do, do it to the honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. I want you to catch this for a minute, okay? Because this is key. Notice what Paul does here in verse nine. He says, for to this end, Christ died, the cross, lived again, the resurrection. Paul ties in to the death and resurrection of Jesus, how we treat one another. It is that serious a theological construct to Paul. The way you live with other believers is akin in Paul's mind to how Jesus lived and how Jesus died and how Jesus rose again. You must remember, see, when, we, when Paul here says none of us die, lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. Let me ask you, what else are you going to do in your life besides live and die? Anything? No. Life and death is the total summary of your existence. And Paul is saying, now the whole summary of your existence is about the Lord. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Every single thing we do is meant to be the Lord's. And so what Paul is actually calling us to here is to be very serious and very thoughtful about how we are going to engage life with others. How you and I are going to live it out. Okay, uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, some of you love C.S. Lewis. Some of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. Some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. That's okay. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Screwtape Letters. And in the Screwtape Letters, uh, if you've never read it, it's essentially a, um, a fiction book of letters that one demon writes to another demon. So the demon who's writing the letters is a very experienced demon. He's high up in the, in the hierarchy of demons and he's writing a very young demon who's his nephew and he's telling his nephew how to attack Christians. So the benefit of the book is you read it and you get these like kind of backwards ways of looking at Christianity. It's very unique. And in the screw tape letters, basically what happens is the demon fails and the guy becomes a Christian. And the uncle's just going, you're a terrible demon for shame, demon. Like, why didn't you do better? So he uh, later starts writing to him and this is what he gets to. He gets to one point where he says, okay, the guy's just become a Christian and this is your moment because here is what you need to know. 
is that there is a moment when God, he calls God the enemy. He goes, there's a moment when our enemy allows his people to move out of illusion and into reality. And they have to move out of their daydreams into real life. Okay. And this is one of the passages that he puts in that kind of idea. He says the enemy, remember that's God, allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey buckles down to really learning Greek. It occurs when lovers have got married and begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. So what's he saying? He's basically saying that in human life, there is you dreaming about something and then there's you doing something. And the transition from dreaming to doing is filled with disappointment. Amen? See, here's the thing, and here's the thing I want you to grasp. You guys are in your 20s. God willing, you have 60 years ahead of you, right? Maybe more. You, have, you are living in an exciting time of life, the transition from high school to college to young adulthood, your single years, the beginning of marriage. You have exciting lives, moments of life coming ahead of you. But even now, the beginning of what the old poets called NUI is seeking in. NUI means existential boredom. If you're a freshman, it's all new, it's all fun. How many of you are seniors in here and kind of look back at your freshman years and kind of go, God, I mean, that was fun, but now it's all kind of boring. I'm ready to get out of here. But then you have friends who are two years out of school and they're going, stay there, man. Stay there. There's some of you here, but I've been here since Crossroads started. I'm never leaving. Culture-wide, we are experiencing an entire generation of millennials who will not move into adulthood. It's even getting its own sociological name called extended adolescence. Because you know instinctually the movement from dreaming to doing is laborious. Here's why I'm saying this to you. The walk of Christianity. If you're now in your, your late teens, early 20s, and you're thinking about your Christian life ahead of you, in your heart of hearts, you have little dreams. You have dream of the husband who's gonna come and be your servant, who's gonna pursue your heart, who's gonna lead you to God. You have dreams of your, your godly wife who's gonna be gentle and kind to you, who's gonna be all these kind of things. And let me ask you this. Have you thought about how you're going to have to work harder than you ever have in your whole life on how you forgive them? when they take your heart and stomp on it, because they will, because they're sinners. See, I'm watching all the boyfriends and girlfriends letting go in hands. Mm, I'm not so sure about you. <laughs> Have you thought about how you are gonna be gracious and kind and forgiving rather than dreaming about what they're going to be? Have you thought about how you're going to serve the church? Not what the church can do for you, but how you are in the time of life now where it's time to start giving your time back to the church to serve it and to do so for the next 60 years. 
when the pastor disappoints you, when the other people in your church disappoint you, when your small group is jerks, how are you going to forgive them and do the hard work of living with them? See, Paul writes this to the Jew and the Gentile, and he's going, you are going to have to get along because Christ died for you both. The lesson for you today is to understand what laborious doing means. Because the truth of Christianity is not found in your dreams. It is found in real relationships, in real churches, in real moments, and in your real heart being changed. Okay, Paul calls these people together and they live together and they worship together and that's no less of what he's calling to you. I want you to pray with me. I want you to think on this and we'll worship together. Father God, I pray you set before us a vision of forgiveness, of tolerance, of the real tolerance, not the tolerance our culture monkeys around with that says you better believe what I say believe and then I'll tolerate you. But a tolerance that says I don't understand you but I am gonna live with you. God, I pray you put before us the real work of forgiveness and love and acceptance, not the fairy tale versions of the things, but the Christ one blood-soaked virtues of the Holy Spirit. The kind that made Jews who had looked at Gentiles with disdain their whole lives sit next to them and worship. The kind that made Jewish men who had gone to church their whole lives with women in a different room sit in the same room with women and worship with them to understand the depths of what Christ has freed us from, the law, into a life of freedom and a life of grace. God, show it to us, grant it to us. We pray it all in Jesus' name.